0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Hey, uh, do me a favor. Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And uh, while you're there, I have a couple of announcements for you guys this morning. Um, first of all, huddle groups are meeting throughout the valley tonight, but not necessarily every huddle group. It's Labor Day weekend, so some of the groups are meeting. Some of them, people are out of town. Uh, some of them are meeting, but they're having like barbecues at a park or something like that. So I encourage you, make sure that you call in advance if you would, and make sure that your group is, uh, is meeting, and then get plugged into one of those. Um, if you don't have a Bible, by the way, raise your hand nice and high. These guys will make sure that you get one so you can track along with us. Um, If you don't own a Bible, that's a gift, and we pray it's a blessing to you. Um, Also, with regards to huddle groups, just to give you a quick announcement as to something that's uh, coming up. Um, We've been doing sermon-based huddle groups for a while. Um, I actually write the curriculum for that, so uh, I send to them during the week kind of what I'm going to be teaching on and some questions and things for the groups to be able to to kind of talk through. But we're going to shift gears a little bit in the next season. And so starting, I believe it's on September 20th, is the first gathering there. Each of the huddle groups is going to be going through Matt Chandler's um, Bible study, The Explicit Gospel followed by Matt Chandler's other Bible study called Recovering Redemption. They're going to be phenomenal. I mean, phenomenal studies. And so I really encourage you, if you haven't found a huddle group yet, um, get plugged into one of those. We have a new one that we're going to be launching that same day as well um, that I believe is going to be for singles. Um, I know there's a lot of people who um, are single and haven't felt like they fit in in the same way in huddle groups where it's all families and things like that, which, which on one sense we really want that to happen, and so we, we want people to be able to, from all different backgrounds, especially when you hear today's sermon, to be able to come together in one covering, but we also understand that, that there's different needs and different seasons in life, and so maybe a group like that would be able to minister to specific needs or, or avenues in your life in the future, too. So we'll have, we'll have the details on that one ready to go for September 20th, but I'm just letting you guys know that that's coming. This Saturday night at 7 o'clock is worship night at the hub right over here. Make sure you don't miss out on that. Also, Women's Bible Studies are starting up uh, this, it doesn't say when, but sign-ups start up today. Where's Kathy? When does that start? September 17th is the Women's Bible Studies, so get signed up for those. And then uh, one last thing is this week, um, there's a whole lot of new stuff happening on Wednesday night this week. Our... um, Awana's program, or I was told it's Awana program, but I like Awana's, it sounds better. So Awana's program is meeting beginning uh, this Wednesday night, kicks off this new program. It starts at 6.30, and because of that, our Wednesday night Bible study is now at 6.30. Everybody say 6.30. 630. Everybody say it again, 6.30. 630. One more time, 6.30. (laughs) All right, so this week at 6.30, we will be kicking off a brand new series on Wednesday night. We're going to be doing a worldview series. So what we're going to do is be looking at different topics. Some of them are very kind of hot button topics, controversial topics, um, uh, issues of much debate in the news or in the culture around us. And we'll be looking at each of these issues through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the scripture, and trying to discern and determine how would God have us approach these issues. And we're jumping in right into the fire, right out the gate. We're going to be looking at the issue of abortion. It's been a huge one in the news lately, and so we'll be tackling that this Wednesday night. I'll be leading you guys through that. Um, We'll also have some people from the local Pregnancy Resource Center available and and part of that with us as well. And in each of these, we're doing Q&A also in those series. So make sure you join us Wednesday night at what time? Six thirty, Amen. So, uh, in that—that's enough of that. Let's uh, let's dig right in and uh, and let's open up in a word of prayer. Actually, you know what? Let's do this. I'm not going to make you stand up again because you've been all over the place, right? Everybody, say thank you. Um, but we're going to read the word together. I've been enjoying uh, doing this lately. I don't care what translation you have. I don't even care if it's a different language. Um, again, after today's message, it'll be appropriate, frankly. So whatever translation you have in your hand, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version, but let's fill the room with the Word of God that we're about to study. It's Ephesians 2, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 22. And the Word of God says this, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision... And he came and preached peace to you. You come on now, volume. Let's go. Let's do this over. I've lost half of you. Jump back in here. Verse seventeen. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near, for through him we have both access in one spirit to the Father. into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is God's word, let's pray. God, I pray that you would just awaken our hearts and minds to understanding of your scripture. I pray, God, you would encourage, that you would infuse with hope, that you would correct, that you would challenge, that you would grace your church that you would be our shepherd you would lead lord you are the cornerstone of this church so lord even right now if there are areas where we are off may we reposition ourselves and realign ourselves with your will as a church and i pray god you would just minister to us i pray god for your own great for your grace in my own life lord as i speak to you now or speak to them now and i pray god that the words of my mouth, and the meditation of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Question for you guys. What are things in the world around us and in the culture around us that bring people together? What are some things that just... People, regardless of backgrounds or things like that, they can rally around, find community or commonality or friendship or or unity around some of these different issues. Things like, well, we just, I kind of joked about it earlier, but football season kicked off yesterday or really Thursday night, I guess, in college football, and there's a lot of unity that is found in sports teams, amen? I mean, you can get a stadium together with 70,000 people screaming for the same team, cheering on. They are unified. They even dress the same. They cheer the same. They're wearing the same clothes, all these stuff, because they are unified around a common cause, and that's they have this favorite team, and they want to see that team do well. We can be unified by our locale. That if we live in the same place, you ever been somewhere else outside of Oregon and run into somebody and find out that you live or you're from the same area and you kind of have that whole, wow, me too. And it's almost like this weird brotherhood that suddenly you experience even though you've never met this person in your life. Or or how about other things? Schools, what school you went to, what school you attended, there's commonality that can come through that. Um, Political parties, a lot of that going on right now as we gear up for a year and a half worth of election, woohoo. Um, how about uh, entertainment interests, your favorite band, your favorite type of music, your favorite movie as you camp out in line for the next Star Wars movie or whatever the case might be. There's commonality there. How about hobbies? Hobbies. I I told you guys before, I've somehow, um, and I don't know how it really happened, but it has, I've sort of become a runner, and I've found that I enjoy running, and just yesterday was running on the greenway, and this guy comes out of nowhere, he's probably in his 50s, he's not from Medford, never met him before in my life, and he's like, hey, can we just hang? Can we just run together? That's weird. (laughs) Guys, imagine you're in the grocery store, and some dude just walks up to you and says, hey, can we shop together? That's weird, but in that running, there there is literally a running community even in our valley. And you'll see it if you go out and do distance runs and stuff like that, or or training like we're the, for the the race coming up. Me and Sam both are actually racing in a half marathon coming up pretty soon. Pray for our sanity and and survival in that. But but as you're training for these things and doing these long runs, you find that there's this weird and interesting community that exists. It's like you motorcycle people when you do this. You know what I'm talking about? You're like riding and you're like. As you go by, That's, there's this strange community that happens in that. Nationality, obviously, if you've ever been overseas and run across a group from America before, there tends to be a little bond that happens in that moment. Um, economics, the social status that you're in, the job that you do, um, or maybe causes Maybe there's a certain cause out there in the world, whether it be uh, human rights for this or feeding the hungry here or whatever the thing might be that gets you fired up and passionate about, you can find unity in causes. Those things are great because those are avenues that bring people together and that's a good thing. Would we agree? Amen? The unfortunate thing is, is that oftentimes those same things that bring people together also become dividing lines that drive us apart from other people. So, think about it. Sports. I mean, I'm a Tar Heel fan. We don't hate much. We hate Satan and we hate Duke. <laughs> but in all fairness, we do believe that's justified because Duke was a Methodist school. It is now considered the Blue Devils. I'm pretty sure they've just gotten off track, and that's okay. I think God's with us in this. Um, what about uh, rival schools, uh, political parties? Holy cow. The, the anger and animosity that is exchanged, we are so polarized politically, and that's one of the big issues that kills me. It's not just that we have political commercials for a year and a half, it's the anger and debate and hatred and, you stink, no, you stink, we're smarter than you, no, it's unbelievably polarizing. Religion, obviously, I mean, how many even wars in our world have existed because of religion? Nationality, social status can absolutely be a dividing line where people look down at one another no matter which side you're on. If you're poor, you can look down on the rich as being uppity and snooty and spoiled. Or if you're rich, you can look down on the poor as being beneath you. It it exists no matter what. I mean, in Uganda, we met some of the poorest people I've ever met in my life, and yet they were some of the most materialistic people I had ever met in my life because even having nothing, they were focused on the monetary thing that they didn't have. So, it's not just rich people that might look down their nose or might be tempted to look down their nose at poor people. It exists in all areas of social statuses. Gender. Gender is one. Race. I mean, anybody seen the news in the last year? Race is absolutely one. Sexual orientation. Has that become an issue in our culture today, a dividing line, things, something that brings hostility and anger from one another? And, and all of these are, are, are kind of pinnacle markers. They become markers of our identity. This is me. This is what defines me. This is who I am, what I believe. And if you don't agree with what I believe, support what I believe, or you're not on board with what I believe, then you are against me by default, Um, Used to, tolerance meant giving people the freedom to believe what they want. In our culture today, tolerance means not just freedom to believe what you want, but giving, um, uh, uh, almost like believing it as well. So I can't just be okay with someone believing in, let's say, uh, gay marriage, for example, but I have to support gay marriage, otherwise I'm a bigot and I'm hatred and there's dividing lines that occur in those things. And so all of those things become issues of our identity that we are either uniting with people who are like-minded or dividing with people who aren't. And they overlap like crazy. I mean, the 70,000 people that were at the football game in Oregon last night, if you take them then and take them to a political rally, there's going to be huge divisions that occur between them. And so even that sort of unity is, oh, frail and shaky at best. These are all things that can divide people. Now, This isn't just a 21st century thing. This isn't just something that we've sort of ended up this way. Humanity kind of became divisive and became polarized. This is something that has existed for a very, very long time, but not always. There was a time when we were not divided at all. When we were absolutely, as speaking for humanity here, we were absolutely unified. There was total harmony within all humanity. It was easier to monitor. There were only two of them. But the book of Genesis says that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in it. He filled the earth with animals and all of this, plants, everything. And he created Adam. And then out of Adam he created Eve. And they were in total harmony. They were in harmony with God. They walked at peace with God. There was no sin. There was nothing that separated them from God. Total harmony and peace in their relationship with God. They were at harmony with creation. There were no difficulties with animals. Things were submitted to Adam and his rule. The plants were submitted to Adam and his rule. There was no pestilence. There was none of those things. Adam was given charge of the earth and all of it was submitted to him. He didn't have to worry about a shark attack or a lion attack or any of those kind of things. There was total harmony in all of those things. That's the way the world was. And then there was also total harmony and peace with one another. Adam and Eve, for as long as it lasted, probably not long, but for as long as it lasted, before the fall, I should say, had the most harmonious marriage ever, had the closest relationship ever. Because there was no sin between them. There were nothing that separated them. There was zero division. Everything was completely and totally harmonious. And they were absolutely at peace with each other. And and think about it. There was a constant reminder of how different they were. It's not like they were exactly the same, therefore they were in harmony. I mean, they were naked. It was always obvious that they were different But because of their relationship with God and the harmony that existed there, that bled over into every other relationship. So no matter how different they were, they were in harmony and unity with one another as they walked in harmony and unity with God. And things went great until Genesis 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, Satan comes along and he begins to tempt Eve and also Adam by saying, hey, You guys are in harmony with God. You're submitted to him and his rule. Everything's at peace. But you know what? You don't have to be. You could be like him. If you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be like God. You don't have to be submitted to him anymore. Now it can be about you. And for the first time, attention went inward. Instead of their attention focused on God and following Him and being at peace with Him, instead, they begin to look at themselves, wow, we can be in that role. We don't need to be submitted. We can be like God. And this temptation happens. And they were deceived. And they ate of the fruit. And sin entered into the world. And from that very moment, everything changed. I mean, we know that the earth changed. Suddenly, you know, now we don't exactly go pet lions and tigers We're afraid of sharks. There was a shark attack I read yesterday. Like those, those things, we are not at peace with nature. Anybody got poison oak in their yard? Amen. We are not at peace with nature. We're not at peace with God. Our sin has separated us from fellowship with God. And as a result of that, we are also not at peace with one another at all. And this happened right off the bat. And you see this in Adam and Eve right from the very beginning. They're separated from God. God has to come looking for them. Adam, where are you is what he says. And you see that death, we know, physically enters the world then. Adam and Eve now were dying slowly. They may not experience death right then. In fact, they would live for quite some time, but death was now inevitable for them. But the thing they did experience right away was death to the relationship that they once knew. Because instantly... Their differences exposed in front of one another, they had to cover up. They had to hide these vulnerabilities, hide from one another. Backbiting ensued. It was Adam's fault. It was Eve's fault. They're blaming God. Adam actually blames God for the sin that came. It was the woman that you gave me, it was her fault. What did you give me that for? And so there's this constant blame shifting and strife. Even one of the results of the curse, God says there's going to be strife between the genders now. You guys are going to have power struggles. You're not going to be on the same page. Things are going to be difficult. The harmonious, unified relationship that once existed under God, apart from sin, no longer exists. Harmony is fractured. And we forget this sometimes, but just think about how fractured, how divisive the relationships became. Adam and Eve have two sons, and right then, in that very next generation, we have brother murdering brother. And the Bible's also clear to note there were some significant differences between the two that led towards this murder. And guys, this becomes really the story of the scriptures. Things get worse from there. We go from backbiting and finger pointing to murdering brother in Genesis chapter 4. By Genesis chapter 6, there's so much evil and wickedness and violence and just horrific things going on in humanity that in the book of Genesis it says, The Lord was sorry that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. There was incredible division and violence and and just selfishness and take, take, take. And and it was horribly wicked in the world then. So so God sends a flood and he purifies the earth. Save Noah's family. And so we see that everything starts over by Genesis chapters 8 and 9. Start all over, one new family. Let's see if we can get this right this time, guys. And it doesn't go very well. Adam's, or excuse me, Noah's own family divides, and there's anger and hostility between them over a situation that happens with Noah. And then in Genesis chapter 10, there's this uh, uh, genealogy that takes place, and in the very next chapter, we have Genesis chapter 11, the story of Nimrod and the Tower of Babel. Where again, man is saying, we can be like God. We'll build a name for ourselves. We're gonna build this tower into the heavens. And they're trying to ignore God, separate him from that, build their own name. And God finally seeing this immense wickedness that's taking place, looks down on them and says, enough of this. And a whole new level of division kicks in. Because he confuses the languages. So now we've been separated by families. We've been separated by gender we've been separated because of sin, now the language is thrown into the mix. You've got different people with different languages not able to communicate with one another. Misunderstandings are gonna ensue, and that becomes really the whole table of nations flows from all this kind of stuff. Now you have nationality differences between people. And so all of this is going on, this constant division. And that's Genesis 11. But here's the beauty of it, in Genesis 12, we begin to see that God is not okay with this division. God is not just like, well, it's where they are. I'll just stick with my man here, Abraham or Moses or Noah or whoever the case may be, and everybody else is in trouble. That's not the case at all because in Genesis chapter 12, God starts a mission to end division, a mission that's working towards unity, not division. And so in Genesis 12, we have this text, verses 1 through 3 says this, And the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Notice that. Abraham, I will make your name great so that you're just an awesome guy and get a lot of attention. No. God specifically says, Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to give you resources. I'm going to make you powerful and great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. God creates the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, and their mission is through the blessings that God pours into Abraham and his people. They are to be funnels that, that push this blessing out into the rest of the world. They are to be those who are exemplifying God's grace and showing God's kindness to the world and thereby drawing people to God. Not drawing lines to separate people, but drawing people to God. And so suddenly you see these things that, that just seem foolishness in a dog-eat-dog world. You see things like, hey, you're going to take care of widows. Hey, you're going to take care of orphans. Hey, Israel, aliens, outsiders, immigrants, you're going to take care of them. You're going to allow them refuge. Even slaves that that you have, every seven years, you're cutting people free. You're cutting debts free. We're bringing people in. We're going to show grace and kindness. God creates Israel as his people, his chosen people by which he's going to minister to the rest of the world. And he marks them. He gives them a strange but important biblically mark. It's referred to as circumcision. Young people, ask your parents. But circumcision is given to denote these are the people of God. These are my people. And therefore, these are the people who are on my mission. They're on my agenda. They're on my plan. They're gonna follow my lead. They're gonna do what I ask them to do. And then you go through the law, and so many people wanna just crush the Old Testament law. Oh, it says this, if you do this and this, you're gonna lay in this person, you're gonna lay in your blood. And if you do this and this, and they just wanna talk about how mean God was. Those are people who haven't read it. God's law is incredibly generous and incredibly fair, holy, absolutely. But God is calling Israel to do things that just don't even make sense culturally at the time. To be vessels of grace and mercy to other people in the world all around them so that people would learn that God is gracious and mercy. And when God says that he wants Israel to glorify him, what he means is you're going to become a tangible representation of who I am. I'm merciful, I am kind, I am patient. And so you are to other people gonna be merciful, kind, Patient, and this is the mission of Israel. And listen, Israel should have been enthusiastic about this. Because over and over, God reminds them why he picked them in the first place. He says, I didn't pick you for this mission because you were the A-team. I didn't look down on the world and go, what's the best nation that I can use? Which nation has all their stuff together? Which nation has the best communication system, the strongest leaders, the most people? Because if we have more people doing this, we'll be able to spread the message farther. Who's the best nation I can find to do this? He says specifically, that's absolutely not what I did. I did not choose you because you were the greatest or anything. You were small. You were nothing. Abraham, you were a moon-worshipping pagan in a foreign land that would eventually be named Babylon when I chose you, but I chose you because even in your mission to the world, I want people to see me, not you. Your mission is not to be puffed up and become this powerful nation just so Israel can be great. Your mission is that as I pour blessing into you, you will pour blessing into others. People will learn about me, and I'm calling the world back to me. We would call it reconciliation where sin had divided humanity, God is calling people back together, but not just around a cause or a team or a band or anything like that, around himself. He's calling a people to him. So how did it go? Not too good. Israel did not do this. What Israel did was something that we are very prone to do. They went from, man, God has shown us favor to we are God's favorites. It went from favor to favorite. And instead of looking out at, for example, the alien and looking at them as, hey, this is someone that we can pour into, we can show mercy to, and they will learn about God through this and they will be able to worship with us. Instead of doing that, they shut walls down and they drew lines and they said, no, not you, you're not like us. You're not Jewish. You're not any of these things. And by the time you get to the book of Amos, for example, which we just finished studying not long ago, you have the prophets of God calling out Israel saying, What's the matter with you? Don't you understand the mission that I gave you? And Israel, again, you should have been enthusiastic about this, not just because you were small and weak and I came and helped you, but also because you were slaves, you were foreigners. You were exiled with nothing, and by my grace, I pulled you out of slavery more than once. And so because you understand that you're not who you are because you're awesome, you're who you are because I'm awesome, be on my agenda. Help the world see who I am through you. But again, instead of favor, it became favorite. And they became people who were really just guilty of a gluttony of riches. We all know the story, for example, of Sodom and Gomorrah and God's judgment poured out on the people of those two cities. We know about the sexual sins that were going on then. Less publicized is the other sins that the prophets really call Sodom out for, but they're actually calling Israel out for committing the same sins. So, for example, in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verse 48, we have the text here, it says this. As I live, declares the Lord God, your sister Sodom and her daughters have not done as you and your daughters have done. Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Samaria has not committed half your sins. You have committed more abominations than they and have made your sisters appear righteous by all the abominations that you have committed. Wow. I mean, if you were to ask anyone who's grown up in Sunday school, what's the worst group of people, the worst city you can think of in the Bible, the most sinful people, I, get, I would guarantee you there's a lot of people. It's going to be like Babylon, Sodom, Gomorrah. Right in those three, some, somewhere in those three, that's going to be your rankings, And yet he says to Israel, you make them look righteous. You make them look good. Because I have poured so much into you. And you have become fat with the blessings that I gave you. And I didn't bless you so you would become fat. I blessed you so that you would pour your blessings into the world around you. And that people would learn who I am through you. And Israel experienced, well, the same thing Sodom did. He says, hey, I took Sodom out when I saw this. And so the prophets were even telling Israel, all right, I'm taking you out too. And Israel, the the whole prophetic books are about how Israel is going through this time where they have been removed from their land, taken into slavery, their glory and grandeur completely wiped out and gone. This is the story of Israel. And this is literally, I mean, by the time we get to Jesus' day, You have priests that are walking through the marketplace and they're taking their cloak and holding it tight around themselves. They don't even want their clothing to touch outsiders because God forbid some foreigner, some Sumerian, something like that, actually touches them, their skin, their clothing, then they're unclean. And so they would literally walk through the areas with their robes held tight because they couldn't even have contact with foreigners or outsiders. There's blatant racism taking place You know, the whole story of the good Samaritan, Jesus chooses a Samaritan to do a good work, a good deed to a Jewish person because he was trying to shock them. When they heard that the person who was the example of godliness in the story was a Samaritan, they would have been like, what? Not them. Are you kidding me? There was horrible racism going on there. Then, of course, they do murder Jesus so they become, interestingly, even rival parties within the Jewish system at the time unify, even unify with the Romans who they hated, with Herod who they hated in the persecution and murder of Jesus Christ. And then Paul himself goes on to become a leader in the movement designed to wipe Christianity off the face of the earth. It's a form of genocide, state-sponsored genocide, taking right place right there in the New Testament. It's division at its worst. And that's Israel's history, but it's not just Israel's history. This is the history of mankind. You don't have to study much history to find this taking place all the time. Adolf Hitler in the Holocaust, he was responsible for some 17 million deaths, 6 million Jews. That's almost the population of New York or Florida. Just let your mind wrap around that for just a minute. The entire state of New York murdered. That was Adolf Hitler in the Holocaust. Pol Pot killed 3 million Cambodians in his reign. Hideki Tojo to, Toho. Oh, I don't know, he's a jerk, so we don't care. Five million killed five million Japanese that he considered mixed breed Japanese. Joseph Stalin is responsible for 23 million deaths. Mao Zedong, between this just blows my mind. Chinese dictator, responsible for somewhere between 49 and 78 million deaths. Unbelievable. 49 and 78 million deaths. That's the history of the world. Good thing we live in America. USA. USA. Right? We're not immune either. Look at our history. Slavery. The Civil War. Um, look, Look at the race riots even today. The hate crimes happening even today. I mean, just even recently in the news, we're seeing this It's a new thing every day. And it seems like race in particular right now is really flaring up for some of these topics. And then we haven't even touched on abortion, our own form of the Holocaust going on in this culture. And then we have elsewhere in the world, there are religious wars, there's refugee crisis going on all over the world right now, mass murderers such as ISIS, Boko Haram, murdering dictators currently existing in North Korea, China, Burma, Sudan. Turkmenistan, Cuba, Swaziland, and more. Ah, but we're the church. So thank goodness the church would never divide. Thank goodness we are the bastion of unity, and the church has existed throughout all these messes that have gone on historically. Thank goodness the church has at least held on to its message, at least held on to its mission. Not like Israel who blew theirs. The church has been faithful. Do some research about the church's role in the Holocaust. Look at the history of our Bible. The book you hold in your hands is bathed in blood and wars and violent acts that took place. It is a miracle that we even have this book. Look at the martyrs that have taken place, the holy wars that have taken place throughout the world. Look at how churches were used to further segregation, slavery, things like that in our own country. Look at how even people in horrific situations like the Ku Klux Klan and others still claim the rights of the church and claim the doctrine of the church to further their messages of hate. And then this idea about this inward focus, not letting blessings flow through to minister to the world around us, don't we have example after example after example of ministries that have built incredible empires taking advantage of money and people, abusive leadership, all of these things, and gotten fat and gluttonous on the blessings that came into the church instead of pouring them out to the other people. Don't we see this all the time? I'll tell you right now, the prosperity gospel movement in our country right now, which is as strong as it's ever been, is absolute unchristian heresy with people getting fat on blessings and then trying to say, if God really loves you, you'll get fat too. It is horrific gluttony and wickedness that is just as evil as the wickedness that Israel was judged for. And then just on a basic level, the church has been guilty of division just as much as well. Rival factions inside. You ever thought about why in cities is there a first Baptist church and a second Baptist church? There's a bad story that started that. That's true. Most of our denominations exist because we couldn't get along on different issues. I mean, how many times do church splits happen? I mean, God is amazing because he will be glorified through them and and somehow through all this, he's just put more churches out there that preach more gospel and do more good work. But how many of those actually started in selfish, sinful, divisive pride? And God just somehow works good things out of them. And the church is not immune to the divisive nature of humanity that exists out there either. And this is what's going on in Ephesus. Ephesus. Here in our story, Paul is dealing with another issue, another divisive issue. It's the conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. Gentile, for those who don't know, basically just means non Jew. You're either Gentile or you're, or excuse me, you're either Jewish or you're not, which right away is an incredibly divisive labeling system, is it not? There's us and everybody else. But this is what they were this is the fight. And historically, what had happened is, whenever someone was converting or being saved, especially when you look at the Old Testament, people who were outside of the Judaic belief system would convert to Judaism to be reconciled to God. So you can see Ruth and Naomi and Nathan and others. You see these things going on where people who are outside the family of God are unified to God by going through the Jewish system until the cross, when Jesus dies for our sins, the veil in the temple is, is rent in two. You can even look at how the temple is laid out and see the divisive nature of humanity, can't you? There's the court of the Gentiles. And if you're a Gentile, you can come in here and worship, but you can't go any further then there's the court of the Jews where they can go in, but women can't go past this point, and eventually it just keeps breaking down until you go into the Holy of Holies, and that's only one person, has to be a man, no one else can go on there. There's barriers constantly throughout all that. If you go to Israel today, when we went as a church a year ago to Israel, we went to the wall, the wailing wall, the, the surviving wall of the Temple Mount there to worship and to pray, It's divided. The men are over here, and the women go over here. And it, it felt weird and wrong, but it is still done to this day. And if you were to try to cross that boundary and go into one of those other areas, man, you're going to be in trouble. And so this is what Israel had become. And so now in the church... Jesus dies for our sins. He dies on the cross, and the Bible tells us that the veil in the temple was rent top to bottom. Not bottom to top as human could tear it, but top to bottom as if God himself was tearing this dividing wall. And he says, no more. The division's gone. There's no more having to go to a priest and then wait for him once a year to go in and atone for sins. No more of this stuff. In fact, you are now a nation of priests, Now you're all unified under Christ. We all become the body of Christ under the headship of Christ, and there's to be unity in Jesus. And so suddenly the Gentile people are not having to convert to Judaism anymore before they become Christian. Well, the Jewish Christians had a problem with this. Wait a minute. I went through all this stuff, man. I went through all the classes. I learned all the stuff. I, I, I had all these things done for me. I wear the hat. I do all that kind of stuff. And now you're telling me this guy just gets to come in scot-free and just start worshiping? He doesn't have to do any of the stuff I do? And they, and they became like the older brother in the prodigal son story. Remember that? The prodigal son story where the one brother takes his inheritance and runs off in gluttonous, riotous living Ends up just at a complete waste of himself, comes back, the father with open arms shows him grace and mercy, puts a robe on him, puts a ring on his finger, has the fatted calf killed and throws this big celebration party because the son has returned. And then there's this older son off to the side, he's going, hey, I have been following the laws the whole time. I've been here doing exactly what you wanted, I've never disgraced you, I've never done any of that stuff, where's my party? And the Bible shows him as the one left outside the party, caught up looking at himself, looking at his own righteousness, judging the sins of his brother, seeing the division between him and wanting no part of what's going on in there and missing out on the work that God is doing. This is what was going on in the church. Jewish Christians going, you mean they just get to get in? Now they're in them? And there's this debate going on here. And so Paul addresses this in our text. And he says in Ephesians 2 verse 11, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. Remember the sign I told you about that marked them? Well, we have a way as humanity of coming up with degrading names for one another. Some are more creative than other ones. This one's pretty simple. To call someone the uncircumcision wasn't just descriptive. It was demeaning. It was a racial insult of sorts is what it was. And he says, remember, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at a time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Think about it now. The Jewish people, They're supposed to minister to aliens on behalf of God. The Jewish people separating themselves from everyone else were supposed to be vessels of grace to everyone else. So listen to what Paul's saying. He says, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now... In Christ Jesus, you once were far off and been brought near by the blood of Christ. He himself is our peace, and this is key, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and preached peace to those who were near, for through him we both have access in one spirit. How many spirits? One spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you are also being built together, together, say that word with me, together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. You hear the words he's saying. You guys are dividing. But Jesus has changed things. There's no longer two different people here. There's one. The hostility is gone. The disunity is out. You are now together. Now the the issue that was going on here, and this is really the theme in the book of Ephesians, is an issue of identity. This is an issue of identity. This is who I am, and who I am is better than who you are. I don't like who you are. I look down on who you are. Who you are is gross or or second class or whatever the case may be. And so I'm looking down on you. It's an issue of identity. So, church, this letter was written to the church in Ephesus, but by the Holy Spirit preserved and delivered to the church in Medford, Oregon. Amen? Amen? So, Paul's saying this to us. Amen? So, let me ask you a question Who are you? What's your identity? American, American. Oregonians. I mean, most of. I'm assuming there's mostly Oregonians in here. Um, mostly Caucasian. That tends to be the makeup of Southern Oregon. Mostly Caucasian. Uh, Protestant. Yes. Um, what else? M- probably mostly middle class. I would say, mostly middle class. Um, conservative. Mostly Republican. Uh, Democrats don't get upset. I'm just. Statistically speaking, this is the church, religious right, mostly conservative, mostly Republican, statistically speaking. But you're saved now. And the Bible says that in the place of these two men, there's one. In the place of these other identities, there's one. Doesn't mean other identities don't matter. It means they are at best secondary to our identity in Christ. So who are we? We're American Christians. No, you're not. Wave the flag. I love our country. You're not an American Christian. You're a Christian who lives in America. We can be proud of our citizenship in this country. and We should be. It's a great nation. God's done great things through it. But your citizenship and identity as an American never supersedes your identity as a Christian. Amen? What about other things? What about, um, I don't know, uh, Oregonian? It's just where you live. It's not who you are. You are a Christian. When you became a Christian, the scripture says you were reborn. I was born in Oregon. Don't tell me I'm not an Oregonian. All you transplants, you're from North Carolina. What do you even know, Jeff? I'm, I'm native. I got the tag on my car, man. I'm native. The Bible says you were reborn. You might have been born in Oregon once. You might be an Oregonian for sure, but now you've been born into a different kingdom. Now you've been born into something way more important, way more substantial than just a state that happens to be on fire. You are now a Christian. You are a new man with a new citizenship born into a new kingdom. You are a new man with a new family, new heirs, new brothers and sisters. Some people go, man, I'm a family guy. I'm a Hensley. I've done my my Ancestry.com, all that kind of stuff, man. I'm a Hensley. You are part of the family of God. And as important as family relationships are, and listen, the Scriptures place huge importance on the family, do they not? But they don't supersede the importance of the family of God. You have been reborn into something completely new. And you have a new identity in Christ. It doesn't mean those things don't matter. It doesn't make you un-American now. It just means no other area of your life supersedes the identity of who you are in Jesus Christ. This is who we are. Therefore, your primary identity is always Christian. You're no longer an American Christian. You live in America, but you're a Christian. You're no longer a Caucasian Christian Christian. You're a Christian who happens to be white, or happens to be Hispanic, or happens to be black. But that is not the supreme thing that divides you from other people. You're a Christian. You're God's child. You're a new person. No longer to a black person and a white person, but one person. Christian. This is who we are. No longer Oregonian, Hensley. You're part of his kingdom, every other relationship falls at least secondary to who our identity is in Christ. This is a very important and very true message of Scripture. And Because of this, there's there's a couple of implications that flow out of that for us to understand. Um, The first one is this. We, I'm speaking to the church, saved people in this room, followers of Jesus, we are currently... Reconciled to one another through Christ. Positionally, in God's eyes, we are reconciled one to another in Christ. We don't always live that way, but this is what we've been designed to be. We have been designed to be reconciled now. Not like one day we'll get there, but now, in Christ, through His blood. To look at it any other way is to put the emphasis of reconciliation on something else. But the Bible says we were reconciled by the cross and His resurrection. And has that already happened? Yes. So we are reconciled whether we live that way or not. So w- what does that mean about our relationships? I mean, think about the relationships that we have. Think about how easy we in the church can divide from one another. I already talked about First Baptist Church, Second Baptist Church, those kinds of things. Think how easy we divide. And then think about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death, praying, Lord, let them be one as I and the Father are one. That's pretty one, Amen? This is Jesus' will for us. This is what he desires of us. God has given two institutions to the world in order that people would see the gospel. One of them is marriage, that people would see two people living together who are broken and fallen and messed up, but yet they're committed to one another and and all this stuff. The, The other one is what? The church. And in a wedding ceremony, what do they say? What God has joined together, let what? No man separate. But if the intended vision, the intended uh, message being sent across is the same, then shouldn't that hold for the church as well? That when God has joined a people together and unified them under Jesus, let no man separate. This is God's message. As members of the kingdom of God, we are to live now like it's going to be one day when the sinful tendencies to divide are gone. We see these in the book of Revelation. Look at Revelation 7, verse 9. We got the text right here. It says, after this, I look. This is in heaven. This is when sin is gone and we're with God. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, even dressed the same. No more designer labels. We're clothed in white robes, with palm branches in our hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb." This is what heaven will be like. Now, some people would say, look, it's okay that churches aren't diverse. I mean, people just naturally drift towards people that they're alike. It's just a kind of a human nature thing. If we have things in, in common, if we have certain interests that we agree with, then we're just going to naturally drift towards one another, and that's okay. That's all right. That's not what heaven's going to be like. And the church now is an outpost of the kingdom of God. We are supposed to live now in the way that the kingdom of God is going to look then. I pray regularly for increasing diversity in our church. I know we live in Medford, so that's a tough prayer. <laughs> it just is. It means some people gotta move. But I pray regularly for diversity in our church. Because I, I want Heritage to more and more and more be able to picture to the community around us what heaven's gonna be like, because this is what we're called to do. And, and, and if Heritage turns inwardly focused and becomes all about heritage, or we become all about ourselves in general. Remember, heritage or the church is not an organization, it's a people. So if we become inwardly focused and we just turn in on ourselves all the time, then we'll have nothing to share with anyone else out there, and we will not be a representative of the kingdom of God. We just won't. We'll be a bad one. And so I pray regularly for this. And and here's how I know this is God's will. Not only in Revelation is heaven going to be like that, Because you could say, well, we'll be like that in heaven, but right now it's just too complicated, and we don't get along, so we should just do the best we can with what we got, let God fix it later. Not true. Because what happens in Acts chapter 2 when the church is created? The followers of God are gathered together. The Holy Spirit comes down upon the people, and what do they start doing? They start speaking in every tongue on earth earth so that all these people that are around from all different nations, tribes, and people can understand and hear the gospel. Right from the beginning, there's a call to all sorts of people to come to the church. This is God's mission. We, the church, are unified to one another. The salvation that you have been receiving, oh, we're going late, aren't we? Sorry. <laughs> Still summer break and you're off tomorrow. Relax. the <laughs> The salvation that you have received is not just an individual salvation. Please know this, everybody hear me. The salvation you have received in Jesus Christ is not just an individual salvation. You have been saved individually from sin, but we have been saved collectively to the kingdom of God, to one another. God is reconciling us together. We are reconciled to one another. In other words, we gotta start showing more grace to one another. We gotta pray that God's spirit shows us areas where we've drawn dividing lines between us and other people who are just different than us and that's an, we need to recognize that for what it is, absolute sin. And we should repent of that. And we should be willing to let the Spirit lead us beyond the comfort of our own skin or our own political party or whatever the case may be that God might minister to people who aren't like us because remember, we too were once aliens. We too were once on the outside. We too were once not part of the family and God called us in. This is the reality of the church, right? And so that's the first thing, uh, implication that we are reconciled to one another. We should start living that way, amen? Like, some only five people believe that. Amen? Yes. Okay, and the second thing is this, and I'll be fast. We are now agents of reconciliation to the rest of the world. So it's not just that we've been reconciled in here, and we have this cool, happy little club, and we get to hang out. It has implications in here for us, Absolutely. But the implications are designed, just like they were for Abraham and just like they are for us, that it would flow from outside of this room and that we would now go beyond God's agenda and be agents of reconciliation with the rest of the world. He calls us to this in Corinthians. This is the mission he gives the church right off the bat. Go, therefore, into all nations, baptizing them, making disciples, teaching them to obey the word of God, to all nations, black, white, white, Asian, does not matter. God is calling all nations and all people to himself, and he has called the church to be the hand of God, the agent of reconciliation to those people in the world all around us. The problem is this doesn't happen nearly as much as it really should, But and, and here's why. And this is, again, it's that human nature thing. We have a tendency to gravitate towards people that we're like, and most of us, especially if you've grown up in the church and those kind of churchy conservative cultures you kind of end up in a little bit of what we what we refer to sometimes as a Christian bubble. And so for the average Christian right now, they honestly don't have many friends outside of the church. Now that's good to have friends in the church. We are supposed to we're part of a family. We're reconciled to one another. That's good, right? But we're a family who's on mission. And sometimes When we don't have any relationships with anyone outside of our Christian circles, we forget what it's like to be an alien. We forget what it's like to not belong. We forget what it's like to come to church alone. To see everyone else who knows all the songs and you don't know any. To hear everybody else talk about Christian things with Christian languages, and it's almost like the confusion of tongues. I hear what they're saying, but that's a foreign language to me. I don't know what that means, and I feel outside. And so. God would have us, when we're here, look for people that are in those things and be welcoming. And remember, we were once on the outside and we were brought in and we need to do the same for others, but even more so out there because, guys, we just live in a culture now where people aren't just wandering through the doors of the church anymore. I mean, the vast majority of the time that I preach, I'm preaching to church people. We don't live in that culture anymore where people just go to church, So that means if we want to accomplish the mission of God and be agents of reconciliation to people in the world out there, you got to go make some friends. you got to be willing to be seen with someone who's not so holy as you. And to understand that that's just like Jesus too, who was a friend to sinners. And that's scary. My my daughter's about to go off to public school for the first time, and she's going to start making relationships in a new culture that's different than just the church culture she's been a part of. And so that's going to be a thing to navigate. You know, at what point is she affecting the culture around her, or at what point is she being changed by the culture around her? Those are things that have to be monitored, absolutely. Um, but it's it's good. It's, I'm nervous as a parent, don't get me wrong, but but I want my daughter to make relationships with people out there. I want my daughter to invite her friends to church who wouldn't come otherwise. I want my daughter to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to the places that she goes to. Um. But what I realize is I'm just as guilty. I'm just as guilty. It's so easy. And, and, and I could justify it if I wanted to and go, well, okay, my job is to preach to you guys and your job is then to go out there and say all that kind of stuff. And you just bring them to me and then I'll talk to them. But I just don't have time. Otherwise, I got counseling and Bible study and all these kind of things. I don't see that delineation in scripture. Jesus himself was with the woman in the well ministering, was he not? People, we have a, we have a mission to go to all the world. And I would say, make sure you consider people different than you. They're not as holy, they're not as cultured, they're not as wealthy, they're not as poor, their skin color is different, their interests are different, they got tattoos, they don't have tattoos. Whatever the case may be, we are called to minister the gospel of Jesus Christ to everyone. And I pray, Heritage, I pray for us. Let us not become like Israel. Separate ourselves from everyone else and and become the favorites. Oh, look how God's blessed me. Without allowing the blessings God has given us to flow to people out there, people are dying apart from Jesus. And he's called us to share the gospel with them. But also let us not forget, within this same room, we are unified We're different, we're not, I mean, you know how it works. When you're family, you don't always get along, amen? But we are unified. People say blood runs thicker than water. The blood of Christ is thicker than anything. And we have got to be better as a church at showing grace to one another and mercy to one another and loving one another and learning from one another who's different. And that doesn't just extend in here, the church is global. So when we see the things going on in black churches in South Carolina that should crush you, to see those things. When we hear about persecution overseas, that should break our hearts because that is our family. Man, when we go to Uganda and we worship with them, they worship way different than us. Way different. But they're the same. They're they're brothers and sisters in Christ and there is a unity that develops in those relationships that cannot be duplicated anywhere else. So don't forget, we're agents of reconciliation to the world out there and we are by the blood of Christ, reconciled to one another. No division. Say it with me. No division. Amen? Oh, it's late. Sam, I'm gonna bump you again. Will you guys stand? Uh, Sam has had this one worship song ready for the end of service for two weeks in a row now and he hasn't got to play it yet. Poor Sam. Worship night, Sunday, or Saturday, 7 o'clock, yeah? Will you just bow your heads and let's just pray. God, I'm just thankful for your word, for the conviction that comes by it, the correction that comes by it, the reminders that come. Lord, I'm thankful, Lord, even in this text, as we see in verses 1 through 10, what you've saved us from, but also verses 11 through 22, what you've saved us to. And I pray, Lord, for heritage, that there would be an increasing unity, but, but not unified by culture or race or any of those things, not, not even unified because we happen to all go to the same building to worship. May we be unified by the blood of Jesus Christ one with another. May we be more graceful to one another, more gracious to one another, more loving to one another. May we be quick to repent. God, I pray that you would just, um, just continue to mold heritage into a greater and greater representation of who you are, and may we never forget that we were once outsiders. I pray, God, also that we would be ministers of your gospel and agents of reconciliation to the world around us to a greater and greater degree. God, will you help people build relationships with those who don't know you? Help us to reach out, Lord, to the unsaved. God, don't let us get caught up in just our Christian bubble, but may we remember that we are your people on your agenda, on your mission. And So, God, I pray for a revival in this valley. I pray you would use the people in this room, Lord, to to bring people to Jesus. And God, I pray for that beautiful day when you come, when we are able to worship with people from every tribe, color, socioeconomic background, nation. I pray, God, for that day when we get to gather together and sing, Lord, that worthy is the lamb who was slain. And I'm just thankful, God, for your gospel.